Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. Uh, well, thank you for being here this morning. This is these are the kinds of days that um, that are that are the stuff that church planters' nightmares are made of. Uh, these these uh, middle of the summer holidays, and so I'm just it just really is an encouragement to see so many of you who've come. Uh, I feel a certain amount of pressure this morning because my son went to camp Gilead this past weekend. Um, the one thing that that he said coming home from that the most is how much he enjoyed the preacher there, and told me that if I preached like him, he would enjoy listening to my sermons more than he does because I use big words that he doesn't understand all the times and all the time. And so, Jonathan, thank you for calling me back to simplicity, even in chiding me. And so, uh, at, with the kids in here this morning. Uh, I'm going to do my best. I, I think one of the, the realities of that is it's so easy to get tripped up in what to say because it's never a good thing when you're a young preacher who is having a hard time explaining passages of Scripture to other people because you don't really understand them for yourself. Uh, and we're at another passage like that this morning that I just kind of fumble over, I think, because um, it's so hard, it's so uh, out of the ordinary from what you normally hear. Uh, talked about in Christian circles, and yet we've got to deal with it because it's right there in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, we're going to continue working through Matthew, and we've come to Matthew chapter 16. Um, and we're looking at a passage that is in some ways the apex of Matthew's Gospel and very familiar to some of us where Peter has a really... Peter has uh, a great day and a bad, his best day and his worst day on the same day. Uh, and so it's just kind of kind of striking. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to read there with us, Matthew 16... Verses 13 uh, through 26, and we're going to read together. So let's read. That's also on the screen behind me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked some of his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is God's word. So you can see another cheery passage for us to work our way through this morning. <clears throat> Jesus has a way of, of just laying it all out there, doesn't he? Uh, in many ways, most scholars would say this is a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus and his disciples have traveled to the northernmost part of their journeys. So their Caesarea Philippi is, is way up here in the north. Uh, they've been kind of moving away from Jerusalem, traveling throughout the land. Jesus has been preaching and healing, and they've they've got to Caesarea Philippi, and it's on the other end of this interaction that happens between Jesus and Peter that they will turn toward Jerusalem and head back to Jerusalem, which will eventually lead to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and death. So this is a real turning point. In many ways, this is the crux of Matthew's entire gospel, this interchange that happens here. And so as we talk about what it means to be disciples of Jesus as we work our way through this portion of, of Matthew's gospel, this passage is obviously very important to us. And I want us, without any further introduction, just to get into the text. And there's going to be four things, and they correspond to the four points in your outline, which are numbered incorrectly due to my changing them so many times on Connie this, this week. But four things, I want us to see the, the, the Christ. Then secondly, we're going to see that he is a Christ who bears a cross. So there's the Christ and the cross of the Christ. And then following from that, then I want us to see the church 
and then the cross of the church. Or you could put it this way. We're going to look at the the Christ, the cross of the Christ, the church of the Christ, and the cross of the church of the Christ. That should be easy to understand. It'll make more sense as we walk through it. Again, trying for simplicity the best I can. Let's just start with the Christ. You are the Christ, Peter says. And you'll see each of those points are just quotations from Jesus in this passage, which I hope will be helpful to us. Now, Jesus asks his disciples this question in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They would have understood that when he said Son of Man, he was referring to himself. So, he's asking them, what are the crowds saying about me? And what we need to understand is that at this time in history... There was a great deal of Messiah fever. That's the way I would describe it. There were people in Israel were looking, they were longing because they were under they were under the rule of the Romans, who were cruel and oppressive, and they were living so far from the realities of the promises of God in the Scripture that they just there was a lot of discontent and hostility and anger and longing for Messiah to come and to deliver them and to rescue them from their enemies and to uh, exalt Himself on the throne of David and to lead them to be the greatest kingdom, you know, in the earth. And so there was Messiah fever. Everybody was wondering, where was Messiah? Where, who was he going to be? And where was he going to come from? And when would he get here? And what would it look like when he came? And in the backdrop of all of this Messiah fever, uh, the crowds, it's obvious, have very varied ideas about who Jesus is. They say, verse 14, some think he's John the Baptist, reincarnated, so to speak. So this is what Herod believes. Herod, Herod remember, has chopped John's head off, and now this guy Jesus shows up, and he, he, you know, because he's obviously paranoid and maybe a little bit crazy, thinks Jesus is John the Baptist, come back to life to haunt him somehow. So some, some thought he was Elijah, and this was kind of the, a vein of Old Testament teaching where uh, in the prophet Malachi and some other places in the Old Testament, there was this thought that at the end of the age, just before Messiah came, there would be a, a, a one, you know, there would be... Elijah would come again. Remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven in the chariot of fire. And there, there was this kind of Jewish strand of belief that he would come again and that his coming again would signal the coming of the Messiah. So some thought he was Elijah. And then others, you see there, say some thought he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, and that was a huge compliment. They were saying he's more than just a typical rabbi. He's not just a great teacher. They saw the power of God at work in his ministry. And so they concluded he must be like one of the prophets of old. And so there's all these varied opinions. And I got to thinking, you know, I wonder what would the answers be to that question if we asked them of people today? Who do the crowds say Jesus is? And I, I really, a couple of categories, I thought there are a lot of people out there in the world we live in that are completely ignorant of him, who have no opinion of him. Then there are others who, uh, who I would characterize it as they just kind of dismiss him. You know, they have a very, they have a wrong opinion of him. That, that, yeah, well, that Jesus guy, you know. And then there, I think, I think kind of the, the most general opinion of people in our culture is what I would just refer to as this kind of casual reverence of Jesus. In other words, he was a great man, he was a great teacher, but there's no expectation, you know, that, that I would obey him and follow him or that he has authority over me. So there's this low opinion of him. But now watch what Jesus does. In, in this whole, cultural context of all these opinions that people have about Jesus. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? They give him the answers, and then he puts the real question to them in verse 15. He says, but who do you say that I am? And you see, that's, that's what really matters. I mean, there are a lot of opinions in our culture about Jesus, but what really matters is what we think of him and what we confess to be true of him. Amidst all of the confusion and speculation in our culture about who Jesus is, the real question that has to be answered is who do we say that he is? And just like Palestine in the first century, our cultural context calls for a clear, bold confession of Jesus Christ. We have to speak into all of the confusion and the speculation with the truth. And so, how would you answer that question? Kids, you're here because we don't have a class for you today. Just think about this. How would you answer this question if somebody asked you at school or, you know, on your baseball team? Who is Jesus? What is his mission? What was he really about? I mean, that's your homework. Parents, that's your homework with your children this week. How would you answer those questions? 
Because they're, they're, they're coming. They're going to come. And so we have to be ready to give an answer. Who is he? Well, who is he? Who do you think he is? How would you answer that? So let's look at Peter's answer because he gives a pretty good one. He says, verse 17, Peter steps up to the microphone and says in response to Jesus' question, you, verse 16, excuse me, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this is Peter's shiny moment, right? He gets it right. He understands that Jesus is more than a prophet or a great teacher. He says, you are the Christ. And that word Christ literally means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a title. Because it's even capitalized in the Greek. It refers to the, the ruler or the leader who would come to rescue God's people from their enemies and establish God's kingdom on the earth. And so let me explain a little bit. In the Old Testament, remember Christ means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, to anoint someone meant that that person was being consecrated for a specific function or purpose. And so the nation of Israel had kings. And those kings were anointed to signify God's favoring them, to lead and shepherd his people and rule over them. Ancient Israel had prophets. And those prophets were anointed to signify God's spirit, making them his mouthpieces and his representatives, right? Bringing the word of God to his people. And Israel had priests, and those priests were anointed as God's choice to serve the spiritual needs of the people by ministering in the temple and offering sacrifices for sin and making intercession and teaching people the scriptures, all these things. But what began to develop was the expectation that in the future a redeemer would come, an anointed one, a, a Messiah, a Christ, capital, you know, C, a Savior, referred to in the Old Testament as God's anointed one. He would be a prophet, a priest, and a king, and he would be anointed by God as the one chosen to carry out God's rescue mission. And so you'll see in your call to worship in Psalm 2, um, he, he, the, the, the psalmist kind of sings, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So there it is. Right? This this figure, this anointed one who would be, Peter goes on to say, the son of the living God. The one who was going to come who would do all that God had promised to do for his people. And that's what Peter adds that. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we need to understand, in Peter's understanding, that's not a claim to divinity, although we believe Jesus is divine. But when Peter says that he is the son of the living God, he's referring to Jesus' function and not necessarily to Jesus' divinity. He understands that Jesus is the king. Israel's king was called God's son. And in Psalm 2 there, it's God promises the, the anointed one, the Messiah, I will make you my son. And so Jesus is the royal son who has come into the world to finally bring about the purposes of God in saving his people. He is the long-awaited king. Peter gets it right. He's the Christ. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just, you know, he's not just some guy who had some fun things. He, he is the king of heaven and earth. He's the royal son. So you see, there's a lot Peter got right. And Jesus commends him for his fate and his insight and calls him blessed. It's Peter's shiny moment. But what's so interesting is in the next scene, Peter Matthew records... Peter has his worst moment. And I, I guess you can make the case, I thought about this, that maybe his denial of Jesus is the worst moment, but I just want to say, to have Jesus call you Satan is never good. <laughs> right? Ooh. So you see, there's a lot Peter got right and a lot he got wrong. He understood Jesus was the Christ. He could not understand the cross of the Christ. And it's the same mistake we make, so we need to take some time to look at this. So let's just continue through this passage. And really, this is just going to be one of those things where we just work through the passage. We're going to skip that little bit and come back to it about Peter being the rock and all that. But let's move on to the next scene here. You see, Peter recognized Jesus as a Messiah, but he had certain assumptions about what that meant Jesus was supposed to start doing. I would put it this way. Peter had a wonderful plan for Jesus' life. And it's obvious from the text that Peter envisioned Jesus sitting on a throne with a crown upon his head, surrounded by all of his friend in the great halls of the king's palace in Jerusalem. And in fact, it's pretty obvious that this was the shared view of all the disciples because what you read, as you read the Gospels, what happens is from this point forward, now that, we, now that it, Jesus is out of the closet, he is the Christ, they've been wondering about this, now all the speculation is being answered 
And, and now what begins to happen is they begin to dream about how great it will be to be a part of his administration. They begin to bicker and fight about which one of them will have the place of honor and which will be left out. They begin to lobby for position and authority. And it's just a true picture of the human heart. That we're all searching for significance. You know, we all want to be first, to be recognized, to, superior, to be superior than, to others, and that's sin. And that is why on the heels of Peter's confession, even as his disciples begin to imagine their own glory and plan for their ascendancy, Jesus begins to talk more and more about what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. He will, if you look there, not sit on a throne of power. He will hang upon a cross of shame. He will not wear a royal diadem. He will don a crown of thorns. He will not be welcomed and lauded and praised. He will be despised and eventually tried and killed there in verse 21. And that is why... That is why Jesus has to explain these things to us, because this is the way of the kingdom. It is a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of sacrificial love, not power and authority and military might. I mean, Jesus hasn't come to grab power. He's come to become powerless. Jesus' intentional journey to the cross is the exact opposite of what our hearts naturally incline to. And we should know this if we plan to follow him. You see, it's too much for Peter. I mean, this this is what I, I just love. I mean, Peter takes, you look there, Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Which I find absolutely hilarious. And also tragically familiar. You see, Jesus is not following the wonderful plan Peter has for his life. Or we could say the wonderful plan Peter has for Peter's life. And I read that and I want to say, how dare he? I mean, who does, who does Peter think he is, Really? Over and over again, what is revealed about Peter in the gospel narratives is that Peter has a very high opinion of Peter's opinion. (laughs) Have you noticed this about him? He often, it's amazing, he often thinks he knows better than Jesus. He has no problem, he has no problem looking Jesus in the face and saying, you're wrong. I mean, in just a few chapters, they're going to sit at the Last Supper and Jesus is going to turn to them and say, you're going to all disown me and run away. And Peter says, no, 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 not me, Lord. And what's great is the rest of these guys, they might. But I will not. (laughs) And and Jesus has to tell him, tonight before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Lord, you're mistaken. I mean, he has no problem looking Jesus square in the face and saying, you're wrong. He takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. And I say it's hilarious but also tragically familiar because I recognize myself and Peter's actions, my own hilarious attempts to rebuke Jesus. And you think about it, and things like, in the anger I feel when things don't go exactly the way I think they should, or my discontent or my lack of gratitude for all that he has done for me, or when he thwarts me, and instead of submitting myself to him, I take the force of my will and I try to get things done without him. See, those are the ways I tell him you're wrong. And it it really is an amazing reversal of fortunes here. Peter is at the same time Jesus' best witness and his worst critic. And I think we can learn a lot from that, that even the wisest and the most passionate and the most committed among us can often find ourselves opposed to Jesus and standing in the way of his mission. And that's the accusation Peter makes here in verse 23. He tells Peter, you are a hindrance to me. Do you see that? The NIV translates the word stumbling block. Jesus is saying this, Peter, you are in my way. You are keeping me from my mission. You are getting in the way of what I came to do. I mean, this is frightening. He's saying, Peter, you're working against me. You're causing me to stumble. And the specifics of Jesus' charge in verse 23 are, you're you're, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. You see that, verse 23? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And right here, we've got to stop for just one minute. And we've got to try to understand what Jesus means. Because what he's doing is he's setting up a contrast, isn't he, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, or the way God works in the world and the way we try to work in the world, the things of God and the things of men. And even the prophets say things like, and you remember this, my ways. God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways, you know, above you. So what, what, what we learn in this is that sin has so distorted our sense of right and wrong. Uh, it, it has so twisted us 
that we no longer mirror, we no longer image God in the sense of mirroring his values and priorities and ways. We've become, hear this, so corrupt that now our natural inclinations run in opposition to the ways of heaven. Allow me to put it this way. If there's one thing that defines God, it is the self-giving love that exists between the persons of the Trinity and between God and all that he has made. And if there's one thing that defines us and how we've been corrupted and twisted by sin, it is selfishness or self-centeredness or pride. And so you can see how these things exist in opposition to one another. God loves his enemies, but we hate our friends. Right? I mean, God God seeks, he, he, he longs to show compassion. We love to hold grudges. I mean, heaven values humility and submission and um, we value ambition and self-promotion and power. That's the contrast between the things of God and the things of men. And, and it's why Jesus has this just, just stunning rebuke of Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he sees in Peter's heart attitude, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. This cross thing you're talking about, that can't be. That is not the way to get this done. You're wrong. That can't be what you've come to do. And and Jesus sees in Peter's rebuke the temptation of Satan. If you remember way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is just setting out on his mission, he goes into the wilderness for a showdown with Satan. And there in the wilderness, do you remember what Satan does? He says, he, he tempts him and he says, you know, look at the kingdoms of the world. You're a king. You know, I can make you the king. They will love you. They will adore you. They will fall down on their face and worship you. You will be the greatest thing in the world. You will be, you will be exalted and lifted up and praised by the entire world if you will just bow the knee to me. And Jesus in that moment of temptation has to look at him and say, that's not what I've come for. I've not come to be praised by them. I've come to be killed by them so that I can love them and save them and die for their sins. I mean, Satan was trying to divert Jesus from the mission by, by playing on his desire to be... Because he's the one who from all eternity has only known angels' praise. He's the one who should be worshipped. And Satan says, go after their worship. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to love them instead. And here comes Peter. And Peter, on Jesus' journey to the cross, Peter says, no, 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 we don't need to go there. Let's make this about power and fame and... All those great stuff. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Because the temptation that Peter offers him is the same one that Satan offered him. And if we're not careful, it can happen in us too. And so it's a calling for a process of continual repentance and faith. Of of repenting and and turning away from all the, the ways that we operate in our life according to the things of men and turning back to the reality of the things of God and how God operates in his self-giving love. Uh, Turning away from our attempts to grab power and turning back to the reality of the gospel, which we call us to live in humility, all of these kinds of things. See, this is what the cross of the Christ does. He's the Christ, but he's a Christ who bears a cross. And so we're talking in this series about what it means for us to live as Jesus' disciples. And we learn from Peter that it requires a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We have to see the Christ and also the cross of the Christ and then live as the community of that cross. And so in point number three, let's talk about what it means for us to be the church. Because you see, the first mistake people make is to think that you can be a Christian as an individual. And the the Bible just doesn't talk about that. And if you look here, Jesus' mission we've seen from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is that the kingdom of God is near. He's bringing the kingdom... He's bringing this whole new reality of God's reign and rule over all that he has made to bear upon this world that is still ravaged by sin. He is making all things new. That's what the Bible says. And what the way he's doing that, we find here, is he just turns to Peter and he says, I will build my church. He's come, in other words, to form... His mission requires a new community of people, and he's come to form his followers into this new community, a colony of heaven, people who live the life of heaven in this world and the here and now. And the name for this community of people is church. You'll see that there in verse 18. Church, it's a Greek word, ekklesia, which is a compound word that means called out ones. It's interesting. I don't know if you are aware of this or not. Did you know that the word church, this ekklesia, Jesus' word church is used only twice 
in all of the New Testament. Here in Matthew 16 and again in Matthew 18, it's a compound word that refers to a political assembly. And that's what the church is. It is a gathering of people with a political agenda who have been called out of the world to witness to a different way, to point people to the things of God, to be a holy people, to be an assembly of people called out of the world. And so there are a couple of things we learn from this verse from these verses about how the church then operates and functions in its mission. If, if the, the Christ requires there to be a community that witnesses to the difference in the reality of the Christ, then how, what is that difference and how do we display it? And we see a few things here, just three things that I want to point out to you in these verses. And first, it means we have a mission. To be the church means we have a mission, and, and this makes us different. So there's mission. Uh, I'm convinced most people are bored. They go to work and make money and play with the toys their money affords them, but at the best, it's a temporary distraction, and I see it all the time. But I want to say, not us. We have something to live for. We have a purpose. We have a mission. We have a story that inspires sacrifice and courage like all the great stories that we read and go see at the movie theaters. I mean, what's really going on in the world? What's the story of why we're here? We live in a world that's been ruined and ravaged by sin, and yet God has come in Jesus and is making all things new. And what role do we play? This little group of people here, what role do we play in this unfolding drama of what God is doing. And I just thought of it, I thought, you know, the church is not an accident or an afterthought. The church is a strategy. The church is a strategy. It's Jesus' strategy for getting his work done in the world. Do, do, Do we have any sense of that at all? That we have a mission, that we're a, that we're Jesus' strategy. I told you Canaan went to Camp Gilead this week and one of the first questions we asked him when he came home was, what was your favorite part? And you know, I'm I don't know, Ashley, was, we were probably thinking playing soccer or, or you know, doing all the fun things they do. And, it, I mean, immediately out of his mouth was Mission Chapel, where missionaries came and spoke to them about this a guy, I guess it's a group in Lakeland called Trash Mountain, right? Is that right, Canaan, Trash Mountain? Um, where a group in, in um, Lakeland is going to places in the third world where people are literally living in the trash heaps of the third world. And going and ministering to the, to the little kids there and making sure they have proper food and hygiene and the nutrition and the medicines that they need. And my 10-year-old was, was, of all the things that he could have been gripped by at camp, was gripped by this reality of there, there are people in the world who, you know, kids in the world that live in garbage dumps. And he came home and he said, I mean, this is just what he said, it was great. We went to dinner afterwards, he said, we've got to do something about that. And I said, you're right, we do. I mean, it was just a picture of me, of, of a 10-year-old heart, who realizes there's got to be more than to life than just getting up and playing with toys and going to school and, you know, all these, and playing in the neighborhood. There's got to be a mission that grips us, and we have one. We have a mission that calls for us for us to lay aside everything that would hinder us and to lose our lives. You see, the church has a mission, and that makes us different. We're here on purpose. We've got a reason to live and sacrifice and love. But not only is there mission, but we see opposition. We face opposition, and that makes us different. Do you see this? Jesus mentions the gates of hell. Look there in verse... I, down in, right, right down in um, verse 18. Uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of the city were where the rulers of the city would come to counsel with one another, and the gates of the city would also be surrounded by turrets and other fortifications. And Jesus' metaphor is just this, that there are powerful spiritual forces that are set against us that are seeking to overtake us. Do you know that? Do you live like that's true? And if we did, it would make us different. The church, There's a mission and there's opposition, but then thirdly, this third point here that I think we see in this passage about how the church lives out this difference is their submission. In other words, we're, we're to live in submission to one another, and this makes us different. The, the, the illustration that Jesus gives here when he's talking to Peter about the keys, excuse me, I will give you, verse 19, the keys of the kingdom. Um, who do you give the key to your house to? I mean, that's a significant thing. I mean, you're opening access up to your life to that person. You're giving that person a certain sense of, of authority and stewardship with your things. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he turns to Peter and the apostles and says, I will give you 
the keys to the kingdom. It's, it's an illustration that speaks to the authority that they will have in this new movement that Jesus is creating. And, and we're told that the function of that authority is to bind and to loose. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that was just rabbinic language for prohibiting and permitting. And so when the rabbis would go to the scripture and would then apply the scripture and say, this, you know, thou shalt not steal. Well, here's what this means you can do, and here's what this means you can't do. And as they apply the scripture, that would be binding and loosing. And so Jesus is saying uh, that we are to be a people who live under the authority of those, you know, that are teaching us binding and loosing for us, that we're to be a people who submit to those things. But there's a huge problem here, and if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism at all, you know that this is kind of the grounding text for uh, the authority of the Bishop of Rome in the line of Peter, which is the Pope. I mean, so we have to ask the question, is this the sense that the keys are just giving to, given to Peter here? The Roman Catholic exegesis, and I would just, in a way that I don't want to get into all of the specific details here. No, it, it looks as if Jesus is talking to Peter, but there's no indication in this text that it necessarily means that Peter and then only those in the line of Peter will be given this authority. But Peter, as he represents the rest of the disciples and all of the apostles in his function as the first among them, as their leader or the one who, you know, the one who kind of has a certain, the first among many, so to speak. And so really Jesus is speaking, I think, to all of the apostolic teaching which leads to the scriptures, which becomes the standard of authority for all who believe in Jesus. If that makes sense. I mean, we can get into the details of that privately if you have questions, but... It remains the church's responsibility, I think, to teach and to discipline according to the apostolic teachings. We believe very strongly in the authority of the offices of the church. And in a world that recognizes no authority other than themselves, that makes us very different. We believe there's a standard of obedience, a teaching that we are to hold one another accountable to keeping. And we don't get to decide right and wrong according to our preference. They're decided for us. There's a common code of conduct and system of doctrine that bring us together. There's authority. And we live under that authority joyfully. So you see, this is the church. This is the way, the church is a strategy of people who live on mission, who understand they're opposed in that mission and who live in submission to the teachings of the scripture and bring all of their lives in line with that. We are the church of the Christ. And he promises to go about, to be with us as we go about our mission. We are opposed. But he is the one who through his death and resurrection has conquered death and hell. And he promises, and I love it, isn't that a great promise? That the gates of hell will not prevail against us? Isn't that great? But there's a danger we must warn ourselves of, and that is to remember that we are not only the church of the Christ, but he is a Christ with a cross. And ultimately that means that we, if we are to be his church, must be a church with a cross. I mean, Jesus was victorious and accomplished our salvation through his own suffering and death, and therefore if we are to be successful... In our mission, it will be through our own suffering and death. Peter, you, we, we saw, expected Jesus to be exalted and crowned and seated on a throne, and yet he was humiliated and despised and rejected. And so faithfulness will require from us the same humility and a willingness to endure persecution and rejection. And these are the things that we've seen. But Jesus says it this way in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, let me ask a couple questions. Does anybody find that hard? Is it hard to hear him say that? Does anybody have any idea what he means? I mean, how, right? Isn't that the problem with this? Is Yeah, okay, a cross. I get it. But wh- what does that mean? I mean, what is this cross? How do you know if you've taken up your cross? What will it feel like? What is, what is the cross Jesus is calling us to carry? And so with just the brief moments I have left, I think this passage helps us with this. If you want to know whether you've taken up your cross, there are three diagnostics, I think, from this passage. And I'll end with those, and then we'll go to communion. But the first is just this. The first is the call to deny yourself. Let me put it this way. If you never say no to yourself for the sake of someone else or for the sake of the mission, you haven't taken up your cross. Let me repeat that. If you never say no to yourself, you haven't taken up your cross. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, verse 24, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I read one of the dictionaries I refer to sometimes that that put it this way, that, that define deny yourself to mean this, to forget yourself 
to lose sight of yourself in your own interests. I mean, that's so good, I think. John Calvin called self-denial the summary of the Christian life, and he just put it this way, and this is kind of, so for the kids, I apologize, but it's very dense, but man, it is just so good. Listen to how John Calvin, the great uh, reformer, put this. He says, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let, theref- let, let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, listen to this, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are gods, he says. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule our actions. For as consulting our own self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. The last sentence he says, let, let this therefore be the first step, that a man depart from himself in order that he may apply the whole force of his ability in the service of God. You see, the cross we're to bear is a no to our personal preferences. There has to be a cross in all of the details of your life, in your calendar, in your personal leisure time. We have to intentionally go without something we want and even sometimes something we need. That's taking up the cross. Self-forgetfulness. Deny yourself. But secondly, there's a call not only to deny yourself but to lose your life. And it just gets harder because, in other words, if your goal is your personal safety and security or the safety and security of your family, you've not taken up your cross. Jesus says, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. And that word save means to keep safe and sound or to rescue from danger. So the great irony is just this. If you try to insulate your life from any potential threat, you'll end up destroying what you're trying so hard to protect. And then third, not only a call to deny yourself and a call to lose your life, but then thirdly, a call to forfeit your possessions. And I would, I would put, present it to you this way. If your life is about accumulation, if you are more interested in gaining rather than giving, you've not taken up your cross. Because Jesus says in verse 26, For what does it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? And those are counting words. Right? Profits, acquisitions, gains, etc. And also forfeiture, which means to pay a penalty or lose a piece of property or some other asset. And so another irony, Jesus says if, you're, if you live your whole life to gain, to profit, and to acquire, you will end up losing the thing that matters most, your soul. And if you make your whole life about accumulating as many valuables as you possibly can, it will destroy what Jesus says is more valuable than all the treasures of the world combined. Your soul. And the implication is obvious. The only way to truly profit is to lose. Which I think refers to what Jesus has already called us to. A lifestyle of radical sacrifice and generosity and simplicity in the place of accumulation that leaves you with less rather than more. There has to be a cross in your economic life. You have to sacrifice your lifestyle until it hurts. And that's when you know you've taken your cross. And so... Where in the world do we find the courage to take up our cross and follow Jesus? Where do you find the strength to deny yourself like this? There's an old hymn text written by Henry Light called Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. Let me just read a couple of the lines to you. This hymn, he says, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, All to Leave and Follow Thee, Destitute, Despised, Forsaken, Thou from Hence My All Shall Be. Listen to this. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God, and heaven are still my own. We don't, write, we don't write songs like this anymore. He goes on to say, you know, Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I just, I read that and I think, where in the world... Does that kind of hard attitude come from? And that's what we're talking about. And the hymn goes on, and I think the answer comes in the later lines of the hymn, where the hymn writer says, I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to thee. And then the last refrain, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin in fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think. What spirit dwells within thee? Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? 
Now, what's he saying? I mean, that hymn writer is saying that the power to take up your cross and follow Jesus and really live with the radical self-abandon and sacrifice he calls you to comes from knowing that the Father in heaven smiles on you. It comes from knowing that you are the beloved child of God and knowing that the only way he can love you like that, the only way for you to have the Spirit dwelling in you, as the song says, the only way to have the Father smile on you is that Jesus had to die and face the wrath of God, that Jesus took up his cross, that the King of heaven came to the earth, but he did not come to gain a throne. He left his throne. He gave it up for a cross because it was the only way for him to get you. (laughs) And so the hymn writer says, think, think. What did Jesus do to love you? Soul, know thy full salvation. Rise or fear and sin and care. That's how it works. We have to think. We have to put our hearts on the truth of the gospel. Think about Jesus' cross. The song we sang. A wonderful cross. You know, when I think about the truth of the cross, it bids me come and die and find that I might truly live it. It demands my soul, my life, my all. But I have to think. Think about what Jesus did. Think about the cross of Christ. Think about the Spirit is mine, which is why I'm so thankful to be able to share this meal together because this meal helps us do just that. But before we come to the table, can we pray together? And we just pray, Lord Jesus, would you come as we gather around your table and would you drive home the truth of the gospel to our hearts? Um, Use this meal that we celebrate together now to increase our faith. In the love that you have for us, that's shown to us in the cross that you bore for our sake. And would the faith that you give us in that moment produce in us a willingness and an, even a desire and a courage to take up our own cross and follow after you. That we might bear fruit that would be to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, in response to what we've just said and what we've just heard in the scriptures, I would ask that you stand with me as we do on every Communion Sunday, and just as a way of responding to the sermon and to the, to the passage of Scripture we just meditated on together, let us recite the Apostles' Creed together, which just becomes an affirmation of our faith in the Christ and the cross of the Christ. And so I ask you, Christians, and here, remember, who do you say that I am? This is, this is that, that question. In the, in the midst of all of the confusion in our culture about who Jesus is and what he came to do, here is our confession like Peter's. So I ask you, who do you say that he is? A Christian in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The call of the Christian life is to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. And that can, quite honestly, be a very scary proposition. And so where do you find the courage? Where do you find the faith? How, how does your faith feed on the promises of God to pr- produce in you the courage and the perseverance to do what Jesus calls you to? It is as you see and meditate and think upon his cross and all that he had to undergo to save you. And that is exactly what this supper Uh, this meal that we celebrate together helps us to do because it is here that we get to touch and taste this bread and this cup and drive home to our hearts in a very powerful way that involves all of our senses the truth of what we've just spoken. Uh, The old reformers called this a visible word. We just heard the preached word. This is a visible word that comes alongside of the preached word to drive home the truth of the gospel to our hearts. So we come to celebrate that Jesus is the Christ but he is the Christ who came to die upon a cross. And so we take his body, this bread, his body broken, and this cup, his blood shed for us. And so that means a couple of things by way of self-examination. If you're not a Christian, we want to intentionally lead you, especially kids, listen to me. If you haven't come to a place where you have trusted in Christ to be your Savior, we want you to come and talk to us because we want to lead you to that. We want to lead you to a public profession of Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. 
Uh, we're talking about that in our family right now. And if you've not ever come to the place where you've put your name on Jesus and taken his name upon yourself, uh, this is a meal for those who have trusted in him and who are following him and who have believed in him. And so if you're not there yet, that's okay. We'll celebrate this meal next month. We would ask for you to, to just spend this time in prayer contemplating what that might mean for you. But if your faith is in Jesus, then we invite you to come to this table. But there's, another, there's a second application of, of just self-examination that we would ask for you to engage in, and that is that this, in this meal we celebrate the reality of Jesus' blood shed for us that we might be reconciled to God. And so it would be great, great hypocrisy for us to come and to celebrate this meal together, that, that the wonder of our being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus and not be reconciled in our relationships with one another. Uh, the Bible says that to do so would be to eat this unworthily, and it goes so far to say that if we do not, if we do not come in the seriousness uh, with which this supper calls us to, that some in the early church even died um, because of what a grave sin that was. And so we ask that you would really examine your heart and life. If there's a need for you to be reconciled, the scripture is very clear. It says go and be reconciled and then come back to the altar. We'll celebrate this meal again next month. There's no shame in just saying, you know, there's just some places in my life where I need to seek reconciliation. Go do that good work and come back so that we can partake of this meal in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice which it celebrates. Now, the way we do this together is we will ask you to come down the center aisle. Um, There will be two... Today, because there's so few of us, there will just be two stations. They'll be right here next to the table. If you're on this side, if you just come down the aisle, come to this station, take the bread and the cup, return on the outside back to your seat. Once everybody's been served, uh, then we'll all partake of the, of the meal together. Another thing, Jonathan will be here in the front, and I will also be here in the front. As you come, one of the things we'd like to do during these communion Sundays, if you come and you just have a need, there's something... Uh, on your on your heart that you just need a pastor or an elder to pray for you we're going to be here to, to make that available if you need if you need a prayer for healing physical healing or emotional healing or just healing in your relationships or if you're just desperate in some way uh, Jonathan will be here and I will I will be kind of distributing things and try to make myself available to come and, and let us just put our hands on you and pray for you because we want this to be a time of of healing as well so know that that's what we're going to do okay um, then let's Come to the table together this morning. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was having a meal with his disciples, and uh, it was Passover. And um, he, in the midst of that Passover meal, he took bread, and we're told he broke it after giving thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. He commands us to eat and to drink so that we might do it in remembrance of him. And he promises that as we eat and drink, he abides in us and we abide in him. He promises to come and be near to us in this time. And so, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, let's just bow our heads in prayer and ask that he would do just that. And if you're helping me serve this morning, would you come on up, Rick and Connie and Jean and Marianne. I'm just going to give you a moment in the quiet just to prepare your heart to be still. Heavenly Father, thank you for the provision that you have made for us and your Son. This is bread that truly nourishes not just our bodies but our soul. This is a cup that can quench not just physical thirst, but can quench the thirst of our souls for communion with you and for peace. And so we ask that you would come and do what you promised to do in these moments as we celebrate this meal together, that you would come and draw near to us, that you would come and abide in us and us in you. And would you come and by faith uh, put into our hearts the joy as we celebrate this meal together, the joy that is appropriate when thinking about what we're celebrating, but also the reverence, the seriousness that is appropriate. And so I pray that there will be joy and reverence, that we would partake of this in a way that honors you and glorifies you, and that we would commune with you during this communion. This is our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So, taking the bread together then, this is 
the body of Christ for you. And taking the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray together again. Lord Jesus, as we meditate upon your cross and your love, uh, would you, we pray, give to us your spirit that we might be faithful uh, to the calling that you have put before us in your word to take up our own cross and follow you. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you put such a price, such a value upon the souls of men that you were willing to shed your blood, spill your blood, and to be broken and, and, and bruised. And in many ways destroyed so that the souls of men might be saved. Would you make us wise to care for our own souls and to place as much value on them as you have? Uh, And would you just shepherd us as we continue to wrestle through what it means for us to be faithful to the scripture as it it just laid before us? Uh, Because we realize there is much at stake, not only in our lives, but in the lives of of our kids and our family and our city. And so we ask that you do these things uh, for the sake of your kingdom. Uh, and for the sake of uh, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, We form us as a church of people who gladly um, take our crosses in our relationship with one another uh, so that we might witness to the truth of of your cross and your love for the world and that the world might know that your love is real and might come to know you. And we pray these things for that, for that purpose. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the gospel. Jesus was forsaken. The, the, the hands of God, God's wrath came down hard upon him so that I can now raise my hands uh, to signify God's blessing over you. And so hear the words that God speaks to you that speak of his love and his, and his smile that, that, that is now upon your life. Uh, hear these words. Meditate on them. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ, even as he calls you to go to bear your own cross, to follow him. So receive the benediction. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Have a great 4th of July. I hope you get the barbecue, but you might be taking a nap instead because it's raining, I think.